like uh, Dan, uh, want to uh, welcome everybody that is here and online. Uh, as you know my name, uh, most of you know my name, I'm uh, the associate pastor. Uh, my name's Eric, and uh, I had to do the message with no people. And I'll tell you what, I've only had to do that once in this whole thing. And it is really, really hard. Um, it was, uh, you know, I, I need that feedback. And uh, so I have a lot of kudos to the other pastors that had to do this several times. Because uh, for me, it was a real challenge. Um, so a new year, new beginning. So we're starting this, this uh, new series and we're talking about uh, new. Uh, last uh, week, we looked at new beginnings, right? The, the creation uh, story. And the, uh, you know, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. Um, people always say, you know, just Genesis says that proves that baseball was the first sport, right? In the beginning. Um, anyway, so everything gets created in, in, in completeness, in fullness, in, in six days. And then God rests. And everything is complete, and it's beautiful, and it's good. Um, he creates Adam and his helpmate or partner, Eve. Um, and they live in this garden. And they're naked and unashamed. Um, and, and to me, when I, when I hear that, it tells to me of a, of a level of innocence. This freedom to be as you were created. Um, you know, the, uh, and I see that in, in my, well, first in my kids and then in my grandkids and now my great-grandkids. Keeping clothes on them when they're young is difficult. Right? They really don't see any need for them. Uh, unless it's cold outside, then they're, you know, that we know. But, but otherwise, they just don't want to wear clothes. But then something happens. Probably around three and a half, four, maybe four and a half, they go, whew, guess I should put some clothes on. Their innocence shifts. They become aware, hey, I'm naked. I need to put some clothes on. And so we see this, the, the, process of this, this turning point, this awareness, this new reality. And we're going to talk about that because in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see a huge transition from the beauty of the original creation to the fact that Adam and Eve learned they could disobey. And that is a big thing to realize that they had a choice now to obey God or not. And the reality is, is when you think about it, in the early time, there, they, there was no, they were not, they didn't have any choices. I mean, think about Adam, the toughest thing he had to go, cow? No, I'm going to name it horse. You know, I mean, that was the toughest thing. He had to name all the animals. Other than that, he really didn't have any choices. He just did. But now we're going to find out what happens when they, they get a choice. They actually get the choice. Do they, will they be obedient to God or not? And they found out they have a choice of whether to be obedient to God or not. And that's the way we are. In our life, we have a choice whether we want to be obedient to God in everything in our life, in our sexual relationships and how we use our money, our time, our talents, how we use our power, what we say with our words. Even our very thoughts are either obedient to God or they're not. 
And every one of us kind of has this bucket of challenges, this bucket of temptations, these things that we would rather not be obedient in. And we all have our own bucket. You know, I think the really interesting part of it is when someone says, well, that's just the way I am. I'm like, yeah, that's your bucket. That's not in my bucket, fortunately, but I got plenty of stuff in my own bucket that I need to work on. And so temptation is not disobedience. It is not sinful to be tempted. It's sinful to disobey by falling for that temptation. Another thing that's important to understand is orientation is not behavior. You may have a particular orientation towards something, but that doesn't mean that you have to act in that direction. It's a choice. We all have to decide day-to-day, event-by-event, to obey God or not. And the world suffers under that ambiguity. Right? Man's greatness and man's wretchedness is apparent in all the world. Mankind has the knowledge and technical expertise to make hunger go away in the world. But we do not have the political will or the economic process to make that happen. Nuclear energy could be used for good or for bad. The physical world offers suffers for man's decisions. I saw a show the other day on PBS about the plastic problem. Everybody agrees plastic is this wonderful stuff. It's everywhere. And when I say everywhere, it is everywhere. Uh, and they're talking about the disaster it's doing to the planet these huge whirlpools of, of plastic that are out in our oceans, that are killing our fish, that are washing up on shores. Again, it's something that can be to good and it can be to bad. And we have to choose what we want to do. And this goes back to this simple situation of two people and a serpent. Now, just in case you think this story is just about them... Um, I suspect that we all know what it's like to disobey God. I suspect we all know what it's like to feel ashamed. And I expect we all know what it's like to shift blame off ourselves and onto someone else. And we all know what the costs associated with being expelled from the garden are. So let's set the stage. Adam and his wife Eve are in the garden, naked and unashamed. In Genesis 2.16, God told Adam he was free to eat of any of the trees of the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one little limitation, eat everything you want but that one, sets the stage for disobedience. Walking with God in peace and fullness, what more could they want? They wanted what they were told they could not have. Inevitably, we can be surrounded by everything we have, and the one thing we want is the one thing we were told we can't have or shouldn't have. So the beauty and perfection of the Garden of Chapter 2 gets shattered in Chapter 3. So we'll begin in in Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Indeed, 
Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpents, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, first of all, it's important to recognize the serpent showed up when God wasn't there. If you recall, God shows up in the cool of the day. Now, I don't know if that was early morning or late afternoon, but we know it wasn't when the serpent was there. So Eve only has the words that Adam has relayed to her from God. Remember, God told Adam, you cannot eat, and Adam relayed those words to Eve. Second, we notice that temptation comes from within the created order. The snake is in the garden. Evil exists in the world, and we have to recognize it as such. We read about things like witch covens in our communities, people that keep tarot cards in their desk drawer, or we have Ouija boards in our toy boxes. I can remember when I was a kid, that, no big deal, but we play with Ouija boards. Bad, right? We think this stuff is all amusement, but it isn't. Evil is real. It exists. For all the perceived fun, there are those who have succumbed to evil demonic forces, lives destroyed by satanic influences who will never know the peace and joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Third, the snake does not appear as a devil. Right? Doesn't show up big red horns and all that's a kind of interesting story all on its own, how that picture came up. But that's not how the devil shows up, right? Comes up as a normal animal snake in the garden. Although a talking snake. Um, fourth, the snake is not to blame. It merely plants the seed of distrust for what God has told Adam. It does so by twisting slightly what God had said, causing the woman to distrust God and question his benevolence and the boundaries of his freedom, of her freedom. Now, freedom is always binding. There's a limit to it. Free a goldfish from its watery home into a freedom of air, and it dies. Freedom has boundaries. The snake asked Eve, Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Surely God in all of a benevolence would not deny us something that looks so good. Right? It's, it's, it's a delight to the eye. It will bring wisdom. Surely God wouldn't deny us from that. So the tempter finds a small crack in the woman's defense, and then she starts to talk to the, to the snake. And that's the mistake she realizes, or she doesn't realize, rather, that she has already lost. As soon as she has engaged in the conversation versus trusting in what God had said, that battle has been lost. She doesn't know it yet, but it's been lost. Recall the Lord's Prayer says, Lead me not into temptation. It doesn't say, Once I'm tempted, please help me get out of this. It's not what it says. 
It says, keep me out of temptation. Don't put me in that situation where I have to choose between obeying God or not obeying God. Because realize Satan knows you better than you do. He's watched you your entire life. He knows where your struggles are. So the reason we pray, lead me not in temptation, because I don't want to be put in a place where I know I struggle, where I know I'm challenged. Hard to believe that something as simple as a piece of fruit would lead to such dire consequences. But that's not, in, that's not the issue. The reality is there are parts of our lives that we are happy to leave to God and parts of the lives that we want to keep to ourselves. And again, the devil knows what they are. And in the garden, Adam and Eve were presented with a choice. Trust everything to God or keep something to myself. Personally, I don't think there was anything special about the fruit. A personal opinion. I think the reality of the fruit was they realized they now had a choice to disobey. I think up to this point, they never were aware that disobedience was an option. They had to make a choice between trusting God or trusting themselves. Trusting their own wisdom or trusting God's wisdom. When we talked back a month or so ago about the hope of wisdom knowing what God wants us to do. That's the choice that we all have to make. So next, innocence is shattered. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight for the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loins, loin coverings. God wants obedience, but he gets rebellion. He sees the tree as a place of discontentment. After all, she was not allowed to eat of it. She ignored all she had been given and focused on what she was told she could not have. And her emotions were on display. The tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. It echoes the words of 1 John chapter 2, verses 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. One of the easiest paths from temptation into sin is instant gratification. And it's something that we see in this world all the time. You know, have you ever been to, out shopping and went, oh, I've got to have one of those. And then you get home and you think, ah, oh, I never thought about that. Right? That instant gratification. I see something, I want it. I tell God, I never go to the store when I'm hungry. Because you just end up with all this stuff you really shouldn't have bought. <laughs> that instant gratification, that, that I want it now. She saw, she wanted, and she took. So the passive obedience tells it, reflect on the truth of God. Reflect on what we see so temptingly. Bring our wishes into line with what God tells us is right and beautiful, 
and delay gratification until we are clear on what, is what, what it is that God is asking us to do. The way of rebellion puts immediate pleasure in front of possible consequences. Places our own perceptions on what is good in place of what God has told us about ourselves and his world and separates us from God by abandoning the trust that we have placed in him. We know better, and yet we fall. Additionally, not only had Eve been led astray, but she becomes the source of the temptation for her partner. Adam becomes associated with her in the wrong, and his his is the last and decisive act of disobedience. Immediately they go from naked and unashamed in chapter 2, verse 25, to awareness that they are now naked and have to cover themselves in chapter 3, verse 7. They immediately become aware of the uneasiness that comes from shame. The first thing they do is attempt to cover their uneasiness with fig leaves. There's that feeling in our heart when we know we have done wrong. That feeling is there because God put it there. One of the great arguments I have with people about God or not God is that moral conscience that lives in everyone. There are things we all know are wrong. It's in our moral nature. It's in the fact that we are created in the image of God and we carry that moral nature within us. When we do wrong, we know it. The exception being the person who has done wrong so long, so much, that they're deaf to that voice of moral authority. Shame brings us unpleasantness with ourselves and unpleasantness with those around us. So now they're going to have to deal with God. Sin revealed. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Adam and Eve, now feeling shame, want to hide from God. We don't know, but maybe it was customary for God to show up in the cool of the day and walk with Adam and Eve. Spend time. How's your day going? Can you imagine being able to walk in the garden with the creator of the universe? And now they're hiding from him. Because their fellowship has been damaged, so they have to hide from the creator. Now, clearly... God didn't ask them the questions because he didn't know, right? 
He asked them the question so he was certain they would know. They would know what they had done. So the Lord called the man and said, where are you? And the man hid versus seeking his creator. Who told you you were naked? No one. They sensed it. And then the truth. Have you eaten from the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? Of course they did, and he and they knew it. Now you think, what's the first response, right? Confession. Repentance. No! Blame. Let me blame somebody other than me. We used to have a thing at work that says, this is a problem. Can you hide it? No. Can you blame someone else? No. Is there a way to get out of it easy? No. Bummer. (laughs) Right? So they have to, you know, how common is it for us to blame each other versus taking responsible for our actions? Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the servant. So God told Adam he was not to eat of the tree, but he did, and he will bear the consequences of that disobedience. Likewise, Eve knew better but disobeyed as well. Now what a sorry sight that must have been. Standing there in shame before the Lord, Shame on their faces, guilt in their heart, fingers pointing to everything but themselves, and a smile on the face of the serpent. And that hasn't changed to this day. If I go up to my grandkids and I said, who put the Play-Doh all over the floor? I get the classic not answer. Not me. I didn't answer my question. I asked who did, not who didn't. (laughs) Even when you catch them in the act. Put that back. I didn't take anything. I watched you. I don't have it. <laughs> yeah, my brother said I could. Eh. Even my dog knows when it disobeys. <laughs> it's in our nature. We know what disobedience is. So now the consequences. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten and you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread to return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground for which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The evil power which used God's creation as a voice of temptation is seen in the amazing fact that human beings can, by an act of will, stand against the authority of God. God did not create robots. I remember my kids were like, well, why is it that he gives me a choice? It would be a lot easier if he didn't give me a choice. Well, he did give you a choice. We come at some point in our life to realize that we have the ability to disobey God. In these verses, we see not only a list of disorders which affect human beings in their relationships, but also something that has affected God. Just as God established his creation in the moral framework that guides it, he also pronounces judgment on the snake, on the earth, and on man and the woman. And it's this estrangement that now exists between human beings and their creator, which is the basis of estrangement of everything else that occurs in our environment, in our society. There's an excitement in the blessing and God's blessing of the creation brought vitality and creativity to the whole of the creation. Right? We read in Genesis 1, verse 22, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the sea, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And God also blessed man. In Genesis 1, verses 27 to 28, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But now the opposite is happening. We now read of God's curse in chapter 3 versus God's blessing in chapter 1. It signals judgment and an indicator of coming misfortune. Later in the Old Testament, God's curses are associated with disobedient to covenant law. Another of the symptoms of the fall is the broken relationship between husband and wife. In chapter 2 of Genesis, man and woman were complementary equals with a mutual mix of need and capability. They're united in one flesh, complementary in the creation and in the act of creation. But now in chapter 3, we read male and dominance over the woman. The woman is told that her sexual desire will become an urge for her husband, yet he will rule over her. She is even more depersonalized when God recognizes her and punishes her in functional terms. She is a baby machine that will now painfully fulfill her role. But man was not left out either. What was once a blessing of work in the garden will become toil of work in the field. The beauty and vibrancy of the creation is replaced by thorns and thistles. The sin of eating the forbidden fruit will be a constant memory of the toil 
to eat of the ground until the man dies and the ground consumes him. From dust you were created, and from dust you shall return. Now, it doesn't tell us what could have happened if they hadn't, because, again, God knew they would and it wouldn't. But to think of it, they had in the position to have lived forever, to have been created from the dust and stay created. But because they disobeyed, they were cast out and not able to eat of the tree of life. And so they went from a position of being created from dust to returning to dust. Pretty dramatic thought. You rise up here being human, walking with God, and in the end you end up dust, the same dust which you were created. And in the end of this chapter, we see the first death in the creation as God has to kill an animal to provide clothing for Adam and Eve. Death, which has not existed up to this point, now begins. We also see banishment from the garden, from the tree of life to the ground full of toil, sweat, pain, and death. But that is not the end. We also see one of the first messianic prophecies of Scripture in these verses as well. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the heel, and you shall, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Verse 15 is a beautifully crafted picture of the physical and spiritual conflict between good and evil and the upcoming solution. God puts enmity between the serpent and the woman. At a purely physical level, mankind and snakes are not the best of friends. Snakes fight people, people kill snakes. Which I think snakes get a bad rap, but... It is what it is. But specifically, God puts enmity between Satan and the woman's seed. Now, it's interesting the way it's said there, because when we think of seed, we think of the man, not as a woman. And yet here we talk of a woman's seed. Well, there's only one person that was born of woman alone, and that was Jesus Christ. So Jesus came to repair what was made wrong by Adam, so it could be made right through Christ. He brought back an equal and complementary relationship between husband and wife. One of the most amazing things, it's interesting, I listen to people who say, you know, religion is always against women. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Jesus Christ brought more equality and respect to women than existed at all in the world at that time. He brought back that relationship that was originally created in the garden, the way it was supposed to be. If you're not sure, read Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 31. But more importantly, Jesus Christ defeated Satan. He opened the door to redemption for all of mankind. By trusting in Jesus Christ, 
We have the opportunity to restore the relationship that Adam and Eve had in the garden with God. In the, bless, in the fall, blessings became curses. Complementary became subordination. Work became toil. Fellowship became banishment. And life became death. But in Christ, we are no longer banished, but accepted. In him there is freedom from the bondage of sin, from the condemnation and guilt of the law, from the shame of self-reproach and from the overpowering rule of death. In Jesus Christ, life begins anew. The gospel tells us of a new heaven and a new earth. No more separation, no more condemnation, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. While the new problem brought to the creation by the sin of Adam and Eve has affected mankind for thousands of years, we have hope. We have solution to the new problem in Jesus Christ. Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Open my eyes to those things which tempt me and which I so easily fall for. Help me with these struggles. Bring into my heart your truth, your knowledge, your wisdom. I know, Lord, you want a relationship with me. You know the snares and traps that have been set before me. So I pray, Lord, open my eyes. Give me wisdom. Help me wait to hear your word. Thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.